welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the registration. But is it Mormon Book Reviews? Actually, no, this is a very special episode. I have decided to start another channel, and it's just basically simply called the Stephen Pinecker channel. And uh, I, I'm debuting this on both of my channels. So my second channel is going to be me talking to uh, people about subjects uh, that are of interest to me, authors, scholars, and such. I've reached out to a couple other people, including somebody from the Christian Science Monitor, um, and so it's going to be a second channel. I won't be uh, posting stuff all the time here like I do on my regular channel, but I just thought this is a great opportunity for me to talk about subjects that are of interest to me. Now, just real quick here, I just want to remind people for Mormon Book Reviews, go to mormonbookreviews.com to buy merch. Been doing really well. Uh, I, I, iPhone cases, uh, uh, I even got uh, car seat cases and uh, coasters, you name it. It's got the MBR logo on it. It's really cool. Now, the reason why I had today's have today's guest on is Roger Lanius, former uh, chief historian with NASA, as well as the senior curator at the Air and Space Museum for the Smithsonian. And Roger, I just want to thank you so much for coming up back onto the program today. Sure, glad to do it. And I had to wear the, the NASA shirt just because. Um, folks, I just want to say in the 1990s, 80s and 90s growing up, I was fascinated by like uh, Roswell, Area 51. Uh, this was a time, you know, X-Files was huge on television. Uh, I remember, and then of course, in the early 2000s, we start getting them, or, you know, of course, this is based on the book in the 1970s that we didn't even land on the moon kind of stuff. Uh, but also during this time in the 1990s, I was also reading this magazine called Skeptic Magazine. Um, also Skeptical Inquirer. I'm more of a Skeptic Magazine guy myself. So I was, at the same time I was reading conspiracy stuff, I also wanted to make sure that I was staying grounded. And one of the things I liked about the skeptical movement is they didn't ignore uh, claims. They would actually take that much. I always thought that was to their credit, including one of the most famous ones is when they went up, took on Holocaust denial in the mid nineties and uh, gave it quite a treatment. So that's why I always have a soft spot in my heart for Skeptic Magazine, I've been reading that magazine for over 25 years and it's done a great service, but a great service you have been doing in one sense is, um, you, you advocate, of course, that, um, of course, there, you don't think that there was an alien craft that crashed at Roswell. You also were somebody who would speak out against people who were saying that we weren't, that we didn't land on the moon. Um, I guess the question I have for you is why did you feel it was important to do that? Why, why was it important that you felt that you need to speak out when a lot of people just say, I'll just ignore it? Well, I mean, one of the Working at NASA in the 1990s, and I was a chief historian between 1990 and 2002, these sorts of questions would arise. And, um, you know, sort of, I sort of entered it through the issue of, of the moon landing denial stories that are out there, the conspiracy theories that are out there. And, uh, and this sort of got right to the, to the heart of what NASA was about. I mean, there's no more significant event in NASA history one could make the case maybe in human history, than uh, the moon landing, setting foot on another body in the solar system. And, um, and for those who reject that particular reality, um, it wasn't the people who rejected it that there were, there were the real issues, that when it gets some traction in popular culture, then we found ourselves getting questions from... Um, from teachers, from parents, maybe from kids themselves saying, you know, my kids are asking me questions about this. How do I respond? And the initial response from NASA was we landed on a moon end of discussion. And which is not very helpful if you're a, 
you know, if you're teaching fifth grade somewhere and you've got, you know, three or four students in your class who are adamantly opposed to the belief that this happened. And, uh, and, the, and, and so we did work to try to uh, prepare materials for teachers, parents, others um, to respond to those kinds of questions from, from their loved ones. And, um, and that was a good thing to do, although NASA sort of regretted at times even having to respond to these sorts of things. But this gets us into the middle of the UFO issue as well. Um, NASA is filled with people who believe that, that the universe has, that there's life beyond this planet. I'm, I'm in agreement on that. Yes, of course there's life beyond, beyond this planet, although we have not a scintilla of evidence to support that belief at this present time. Just the vastness of the universe, the number of bodies that are out there, the number of, of solar systems and so on suggests that probably life has evolved elsewhere as well. There's a world of difference between, maybe a universe of difference, between uh, believing in the abstract that life can have evolved on other bodies in the universe and believing that we are being visited by that. I don't believe we're being visited. There's, there's no evidence to support that per se. Uh, there are some uh, instances of, of, um, of people seeing things that they can't explain in the sky, UFO sightings, unidentified flying objects. That says nothing about whether or not they're extraterrestrial in origin. But, um, and, and some of them are not explainable. We just don't have the evidence to, to show what they are. The, um, but that's a very, very tiny percentage of the number of, of encounters like that. And then there are those who, for a variety of reasons, concoct stories, make things up, um, uh, create conspiracies, do it for, for whatever thing that satisfies their particular needs at their particular time. And, um, and, and so that led us into, you know, when we're asked the same question about, about these, you know, alien, potentially alien visitations, UFOs, and so forth, responding to that as well. When I moved from NASA to the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum, uh, the same sorts of questions arose there. And I was sort of the resident expert because I'd been dealing with this at NASA. So consequently, I, uh, whenever those kinds of issues arose, uh, I was typically the person who was asked to respond. And for a number of years at the at the uh, Smithsonian at the National Air and Space Museum, I gave a lecture about this time of year every year um, uh, to the general public about about the Roswell incident, and that's that's how all of this began. You know, um, it's so fascinating to me because basically yesterday I posted on the UFOs subreddit um, that I was going to be talking. I didn't give your name, but I was going to be talking to you, and I got. I mean, it's exploded. Um, it's gotten tons of response, uh, hun hundreds of upvotes, and it's it's really it's amazing to me. I forgot how big of a deal this is, and I want to thank the UFOs uh, subreddit for letting me post, and uh, they they have asked me to post this video, uh, this interview on their on their subreddit. So I will honor that request and do that, and I will try to get to some questions that were that were tossed at me from the group. Now I literally my phone's still dinging uh, from questions, so I can't get to all of them, but I, I'm going to try to at least ask a few questions. Um, <clears throat> so uh, 
before, so basically folks, uh, Roger has a slide presentation. Now we, we ran into some technical issues. So if I'm gonna be doing the screen share, if we run into problems, uh, it's just, this is the world we live in, uh, be patient. Was there anything that you wanted to say before we started on the, uh, on the slideshow? Yeah, the only thing I would say is that uh, no one would be more thrilled than me if we actually found evidence of, of extraterrestrial intelligence. And believe me, we've been looking. Uh, you know, the SETI Institute has been engaged in these sorts of activities. There's worldwide activities to try to try to uh, detect that sort of thing. NASA uh, uh, has been involved in this in a variety of ways as well. And, and, and those of us who would be thrilled with it, and believe me, there are thousands of people inside uh, the, the NASA scientific community uh, who would like to like to find that evidence. Just we don't have it yet. And until we do, we can't say otherwise. Yeah, I just have to ask a, a quick question. So in the 90s, I read a few books about the face on Mars. And sure. yeah, I think it was Richard Hoagland wrote a book. Right. Do you ever inter have any interactions with him? I never had any interactions with Richard Hoagland. I'm certainly familiar with his theories. Uh, and, and for those who aren't aware of it, um, there were some images from the, uh, the uh, uh, Viking orbiters, not the landers, uh, that went to Mars in 1976. And one of those images, and only one, uh, that was taken of the, uh, of the surface uh, showed something that looked a little bit like a human face with a helmet on that was sort of facing up. And uh, there were many people, many at NASA, who were excited by this. With more analysis, though, they, they quickly realized that it was lights and shadows and, and nothing more. Uh, later on, there has been additional visual imagery that's been taken of that same area, and um, and the, and it has it has confirmed that it was lights and shadows on the surface of a of a of a mountain hill, really, and um, and there was nothing there. You know, would that it, would that that were not the case, but unfortunately, it is. Um, there's no evidence that we have found of intelligent any kind of intelligent life and really no evidence of life at all. Although there are many people who believe that there may well still, and we may yet find microbial or other types of life uh, on Mars, but more likely under the surface of Mars if it exists at all. Yeah, and, and I'm, it reminds me of in the 90s, I go to the north side of Chicago to an esoteric bookstore to meet Graham Hancock when he wrote his book about uh, the, the face on Mars as well. Um, it's, I don't know, I, I, find, I find the subject very interesting. Uh, for those of you who are really, really into this stuff, you're going to probably go to me and say, you didn't ask the right questions. And that's because it's been 20 something years since I like really delved into this. So I apologize if I'm not as in depth in this and as knowledgeable as you are, but I'm going to give it my best try. So here I'm going to do the uh, share screen. Let's see here. Okay. Do you see it? Yeah, it's up. Okay, Roger. So why don't you share? All right. So let me just let me just talk through this a little bit. It's sort of the beginning point of the Roswell story takes place around Mount Rainier on the twenty fourth of June, and um, the public version or the or the public instance of this when a private pilot by the name of Kenneth Arnold claimed to have seen. Uh, he didn't necessarily refer to them as 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 flying saucers, that term gets coined 
almost immediately, but you know, he's saucer shaped is sort of what he said. And, um, and he couldn't explain what these were. And he reported it as, as pilots have done in other instances as well, when they've seen something that they can't explain. And this set off a, a, a craze in the US, but literally it spilled around the world very quickly thereafter of people seeing things that they could not identify in the sky. And that's not surprising necessarily um, uh, that you don't immediately identify stuff that you see all the time. And, and now there's a sort of a heightened sense of this, a heightened awareness of it. And it's taking place in the context of the Cold War environment, which, which is very quickly taking drastic turns. Uh, the, while the United States and the Soviet Union had been allies during World War II, they had become very quickly after the war at loggerheads over all kinds of issues uh, associated with the defeated Germany, what was going to happen to uh, to that particular nation state. And ultimately, we ended up carving it up into occupation zones, did the same thing in Berlin, setting off some 40 years of controversy and, and two diametrically opposed political and economic systems that are really uh, having a lot of difficulty associating uh, with each other. And, and we're less than a year away from the, from the Berlin blockade in 1948-49 and the American effort with the Berlin Airlift to uh, relieve Berlin when it was cut off from the outside world. The, um, and, and this situation of desperation in the aftermath of World War II, I would suggest, was part of the reason why we are now seeing in 1947, 48, um, these, uh, these sort of events. And we view them with trepidation because of this crisis atmosphere that exists in the Cold War. And most of the viewers of this are probably aware the atomic bomb was developed by the Americans during World War II and used with devastating consequences in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 and ending World War II. The Americans have the bomb and uh, make no mistake about it, they were prepared to use it if necessary. Everybody in the world knew that. And uh, the Soviet Union was working on its own bomb. And there was great concern about that as well. Ultimately, in 1949, they were able to uh, explode their first atomic uh, weapon. And, uh, and this Cold War environment, I would contend, was one of the reasons why this became a trigger. Now, Kenneth Arnold's story gets better over time. Within a year, he's writing stories in Fate magazine, which is sort of a tabloid. It does all kinds of stuff. You can see the cover from a 1948, uh, spring 1948 magazine. His story is featured uh, on the cover. He, he writes a story about it. There's other stories in there about how invisible people are walking among us on, on Earth and all kinds of other, other things. So it, it's a it's a tabloid that sort of exploits a lot of, um, of uh, esoteric sort of uh, information that's out there. And, um, and Arnold, who lived a fairly long, respectable life, uh, sort of goes into this in, in more detail. Can I see the next slide? Yeah, sure. And, you can, and so you can see a picture of him as a much older man 
uh, pointing to what he thinks he might have seen at the uh, uh, at Mount Rainier in 1947, and you can see it's strikingly different from what was initially described. And um, and we'll go from there. Next next slide. So in 1947, um, actually in the latter part of June of 1947, uh, a rancher by the name of Mac Brazil, uh, really over near Corona, outside of Roswell, a few miles, uh, stumbled upon some stuff that he found in the desert out there. And he sort of described it as tinfoil and you know a few other odds and ends. He scooped up some of it and he took it back to his ranch and he, then just sort of put it uh, off to the side and didn't do anything with it for a few days until he heard uh, about this Kenneth Arnold story about, uh, about flying saucers. And at that point, he decides to take it over to the sheriff in Roswell, New Mexico, a few miles away, county seat, and, uh, and gives it to him. And so George uh, Wilcox, who's the sheriff in, in Roswell, takes his stuff, doesn't quite know what to do with it, um, calls the Roswell Army Air Base. In those days, the what became the Air Force was still a part of the Army, not until September would it be a separate branch of the service. So it was the Army Airfield at that point. Next slide, please. And, um, and the base commander, uh, sends out uh, an intelligence officer, Jesse Marcel, to, uh, to go over to meet with the sheriff to pick this material up. Uh, he then goes out uh, to the area where it was discovered, finds some more stuff there, talks to, uh, uh, talks to Brazil and so forth. And the story sort of goes off from there. Next slide, please. And um, a public affairs officer there says, sort of announces to the public that they may have captured a flying saucer and it gets picked up in the local newspaper in Roswell the next day. And they say it in no uncertain terms that the Roswell Army Airfield has captured a flying saucer on a ranch in, Ros in the Roswell region. Well, the headline was misleading at best and, and just outright a lie uh, if, if you're less charitable. And, uh, and the story itself, you know, goes on to talk about finding this strange material out there and not knowing quite what it is. This is then taken to, um, uh, uh, to a larger army base. Next slide, please. Oh, there's a, there's oh, a yeah. quote from the, uh, from the newspaper or the intelligence office of the 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield announced at noon today that the field has come into possession of a flying saucer. That's what's said in the in the story. Next slide. Immediately, the Army debunks that story, gets picked up the next day in the Roswell newspaper. Um, next slide. It's actually another quote. Roswell bounced into the international news scene yesterday when a flying disc was reported 85 miles northwest of town and 25 miles from Corona uh, by Brazil. And until the Eighth Air Force headquarters and, and until the Eighth Air Force headquarters in Fort Worth announced that the disc was nothing more than a weather balloon, the entire U.S. and England, interestingly enough, England is singled out in the story, seethed with curiosity over the report. And the Roswell Telephone Company was busy handling calls from every city in the country and several from across the sea. 
Um, next slide, please. So this goes then uh, to a higher level headquarters uh, and the newspaper again tells that particular story. Hit the slide, there's another quote. An examination by the Army revealed last night the mysterious objects found on a lonely New Mexico ranch was a harmless high altitude weather balloon, not a grounded flying disc. Excitement was high until Brigadier General Roger M. Ramey, commander of the 8th Air Forces, with headquarters here cleared up the mystery. That's an AP story from Fort Worth. Next slide. So this, this sets in train a set of, of incidences. There's some photographs of these, these Roswell uh, objects, as you can see, uh, with, uh, with Marcel sort of holding a, a luminized piece of material and, um, and showing them for the camera. Next slide. Similar, similar uh, particular uh, photographs with General Ramey uh, and these things as well. It's basically the same artifacts, different person holding them. Next slide. So, so this then begs the question, what was it that they found at, uh, out in the desert there? And uh, the story of a flying saucer, uh, which gets built upon over many years later, um, is it sort of goes away very quickly after that particular piece of the of the story is told. Uh, so by you know 47, late 47, 48 timeframe, this is mostly forgotten about. Uh, the the incidence of it being a weather balloon uh, was satisfactory to most people, and most people moved on. Uh, in the 19, about 1980, there is a couple of uh, rather sensationalistic books that are published about Roswell, and uh, they are um, discredited in a lot of ways, but some people do believe what they have to say, and, um, and it sets off a flurry of additional information and an additional uh, investigation by, by UFO investigators and others. And mostly uh, it was uh, people on one side of the story or another writing. And it's, sort, it's more, rather than it being sort of history, it's more advocacy on, on both ends. Um, this ultimately led and has been built over time uh, to a, a, a major investigation in the 1990s uh, in, in the, in the Congress demanded that the Department of Defense undertake actions to declassify documentation associated with the, um, uh, the incident. And um, there are two big books that were published. I think the first one was in 95, uh, and the second one was in 97. The Roswell Report is the first one. It's the one that um, reproduces a lot of primary source material associated with Project Mogul. And um, Project Mogul was a very uh, secret program in the late 1940s to place listening devices in the upper atmosphere to detect sound waves from a nuclear blast. And what they were specifically trying to do was to gain intelligence on when the Soviets tested atomic weapons. 
They knew that they were working on them. Uh, they knew it was being done in, in a very secretive manner. And so uh, they set up uh, this program to deploy a balloon, a series of balloons, a balloon system, it really was, um, of high altitude sensors that would then float and uh, upon hearing something like a nuclear blast, it would relay that information back to the to uh, listening posts in the US. Um, so Project Mogul uh, may well be what this material came from that was found. Uh, as stated in this report from the mid 90s, uh, Mogul Flight 4 was launched from Alamogordo Army Airfield in New Mexico on the 4th of June. So it's an early event, a few, a few days, or actually almost a month before um, the excitement associated with Roswell. And, um, and what you can see in this picture, and it's, it's small, which I apologize for, but you can find all of this online if you wish to go look, um, is, um, and, and they're, and it's shown in three parts. If you look on the right-hand side, the top is the balloons. And you can see some balloons periodically all the way down this thing. If you go down the right-hand side, you will see some kite-like structures uh, and balloons. You see more of them in the middle section with uh, sensors attached. And then in the left-hand, uh, you can see more of the same sort of thing with, with sensors dangling at the bottom. And this was a very long system, very tall system uh, uh, that uh, was released from Alamogordo. They were released from other places as well. There were multiples of these. And, um, and this one, just a very short time uh, after launch, they lost contact with it. And uh, the belief was that um, that it probably dragged on the ground, pieces of it fell off and eventually took off and went who knows where. The, um, this, this is, it's not a weather balloon, uh, but it is a balloon system of a different type. And there were reasons to keep it secret at the time because of the national security implications of, of spying on the Soviet Union. Now, I should tell you that in addition to Mogul, there were all kinds of other balloon activities that took place in the aftermath of World War II and into the 1950s uh, to spy on the Soviet Union. One of the things that uh, happened, and numerous people voiced this, including most famously President Eisenhower uh, while, in, while in the White House in the 1950s. We can never have another Pearl Harbor. We can never be uh, effectively surprised by an enemy attack again. So we have to figure out what they're doing. And there were all kinds of ways to try to do that. Um, balloon flights were one of these ways. And so one of the famous episodes that was developed was a balloon system like this that had cameras on it that would be deployed from places like Norway and Sweden and Germany, and would presumably float at very high altitude over the Soviet Union, taking pictures as it went. And then when it uh, 
since the prevailing currents were from west to east, it would be recovered in the Pacific by, uh, by American forces there. And this would tell us what the Soviets were doing. It was a form of reconnaissance in this particular case. It didn't work very well. Uh, the balloons didn't get high enough. Some of them were shot down by the Soviet Union. A lot of them were captured. And uh, there was a, a series of sort of public scandals in the 1950s with this sort of thing. This led the Department of Defense to develop specialized uh, reconnaissance aircraft. The U-2 was the first one of those airplanes built uh, beginning its operational flights in 1955 and still flying today. Uh, and the SR-71, which was developed a little bit later, uh, a Mach 3, very high altitude airplane, a terrific reconnaissance air aircraft that was very hard to keep flying, actually got retired uh, in the 1990s, first part of the 21st century. And, um, and then, of course, reconnaissance satellites, which has been the dominant way in which we've gotten uh, imagery uh, from potential adversaries ever since. So this was all part of a larger system of surveillance that was being developed by the United States. Now the Soviets were doing things too, but, uh, but in this particular case, Mogul was a part of this and it had a very specific set of objections. We wanna find out what the Russians are doing with nuclear weapons. Uh, so that's, that, that is Mogul. That seems to be the best evidence we have of a, uh, of an explanation that makes sense from my perspective. Okay. Next slide, please. Now, the legend has lived on and it has been modified over time. Uh, it's gotten better, uh, it's gotten more elaborate. There is, a, there is a conflation of incidents in various places that have come together, uh, all as a part of the so-called Roswell incident, uh, in, including the the, the presumed uh, recovery of, of, of alien bodies, uh, which was not a part of the story at all originally, nobody talked about it until much later. And, um, and um, there is the possibility that uh, that, that was simply a, a set of, uh, of extrapolations and uh, mythologies and outright lies perpetrated by certain people. Uh, there's also uh, the possibility that there may have been some things that people saw that they just couldn't explain at the time that may probably had nothing to do with, and I'm, I'm convinced, had nothing to do with uh, alien interactions. Um, but the legend lives on. Next slide. Before we move on to the next slide, that's one of the things I never quite got is that lightning could take down a craft that could fly across <laughs> halfway across the galaxy and, and yeah. all that you would experience in the in the vacuum of space, but yet lightning could bring down a craft like that. That that always seemed to be a real weak point. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is an artist's conception, and obviously it's a more recent conception, and, and that's one that's one aspect of the story that has emerged uh over time is that lightning struck an alien spacecraft and caused it to crash. You're right. It, uh, lightning does not, I mean, there, there have been instances when it may have, but lightning does not even, when it strikes an airplane, cause it to crash. Uh, next slide. So there are, in Roswell today, uh, a, uh, a hefty business trading in the, in the UFO uh, story that's 
there, including the UFO Museum. Next slide. Uh, a, a crash site, uh, of which there are several that have been uh, mentioned over time. And, uh, and you can visit these sites. Next slide. And then my personal favorite is the uh, uh, is the string of uh, street lights uh, that are uh, you know UFO heads Great. Uh, at the top. And I think that's all I've got with this. Are, are we done with the slideshow? I believe so. Oh, okay, great. So I'll just end this here. Well, that's really uh, fascinating stuff. I love I love that you're uh, giving this presentation. I um, <clears throat> I, I wanted to ask you. So I did post this on the UFO. Um, subreddit and got quite a few the number one question so i'm going to ask at least try to get that one in uh, is uh, it's been 75 years why is most of it still classified so you want to give us a reason why it's all still classified my my my, my I, i'm going to answer that question with a question what makes you think that it's mostly still classified i mean there's there's no evidence to support that um so okay um and then um so I guess a lot of people think like, well, if it was just, oh, this is a, I'm just going to go off the top of my head. A lot of people are saying, okay, if this is just a weather balloon, which obviously it was also probably something with Project Mogul, why was it take, why was all the pieces taken to Wright uh, Patterson Air Force Base? Again, I would ask, I would answer that with a question. What makes you think they were taken to Wright Patterson? Uh, there is, there's no documentary record that says that anywhere. Uh, you know, there's hearsay evidence by people, and uh, and and there's stories from the '80s and later uh, that talk about such things, but nothing at the time. Okay, um, why, if it's just a weather balloon, is there like th over 300 military army people out there uh, getting recovering all the pieces? Again, <laughs> what makes you think there were? Uh, I mean, none of the accounts. Uh, from this particular event in 1947 talks about any of that sort of thing. And, uh, and it's only recollections after the fact, which are under the best of, of and most charitable explanation are embellished uh, that lead anyone to say those sorts of things. So um, I, one of the more fascinating theories that came out on, in the last 10, 15 years, probably been longer than that now, is that uh, there was this possible Soviet craft with uh, that was genetically engineered little people working with Stalin and Joseph Mengele. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. <laughs> so Annie Jacobson's book, uh, which has been one of the most debunked books in this arena, uh, makes this case. It's the only one that does. And uh, I, I mean, there are lots and lots and lots of people on all sides of the argument who have debunked this. So Stanton Friedman was somebody who uh, had some pretty good scientific credentials, uh, was really popular in the 90s regarding Roswell. What do you have to say to his work? Uh, nothing. You don't think it you know, uh, holds, uh, holds up the scrutiny? Uh, you know, I, I am not an expert on his work and I'm not going to comment on it. Okay, that's fair enough. 
Um, I am curious, and you may want to comment because people are going to ask about this. I always find this interesting. Um, oh, I forget his name. There's this guy who claimed to be working, and again, this is maybe outside of your purview, but it kind of ties in because there's claims at Area 51 that there are these recovered alien craft, and that that uh, this uh, oh, what? Well, I can't remember his name. He claims to have worked on it and to reverse engineer uh, equipment. Is it, it, it so? And so that our, uh, that we actually have these craft, or that we've been able to reverse engineer and based on recovery craft that dozens and dozens of them. Uh, do you have anything to say to that? You know, there's there's lots of these stories. When you start peeling back, uh, you know, the the veneer of it, you find that they that it's that are not based on anything and. Uh, individuals who made these sorts of claims uh, have dodgy track records themselves, um, uh, aren't who they say they were, uh, have no firsthand knowledge, and and I could go on and on. And and so you ask the next question, which is why would they make these kinds of claims? And, and again, you can be harsh in your in your analysis of that, or charitable in your analysis of it. But the reality is none of these uh, seem to hold much water. Um, now, there, there, now there, there were, there's no question about this, um, highly classified uh, technical development programs at Wabakel Area 51. And, uh, and I mentioned earlier the U-2 and the SR-71. I could also add stealth fighters and bombers uh, as technology that was, uh, was worked on there. And you don't want anybody getting access to that um, at the time. It was highly classified. So, um, you know, anybody who makes comments about these, you have to kind of question. So there are um, people that have sent me links to uh, basically shortly before their deaths, Jesse Marcel's statement and General Thomas Dubois, their statements uh, saying that there was alien stuff and there was all these bodies. What do you have to say to people that, were military people claim to be there at the site or claim make these claims? Are, is there anything to those that people should take as any of those statements seriously? But my, I, I don't want to impugn people's character. Yeah. Um, but let me just suggest that uh, in 1947, none of those sorts of discussions were had. And much later in life, uh, somebody who makes statements that uh, have no track record, have no, uh, uh, have no uh, um, uh, earlier renditions of them, you sort of have to wonder about. They came out of nowhere right at the, right at late in life. What are they trying to accomplish? So I remember uh, another book that came out written by Jerome Corsi, um, who made claims about Area 51. The, the controversial thing was is that Strom Thurmond wrote the forward to the book or the, uh, and everything like that at the time. Uh, this is a guy that had uh, some military credentials. He also made claims that there was a military base on the moon and built in the early 60s. I imagine if there was one, China would have probably exposed that by now. China, the Russians, any number of other groups would have exposed it. I, I mean, these sorts of things, uh, you know, sort of strain credulity in my mind. And you have to approach these with a with a certain level of uh, of skepticism. There's no question about it. Can it be verified? Are the sources uh, do they make sense? Uh, is there 
Is there corroborating evidence of any type from the time frame? Uh, so when, when somebody spouts uh, that there's a secret military base on the moon, um, on what is that based? Uh, making that claim, it's easy to make claims. You can say anything, but, uh, but where's the substance of this? Yeah, so a few more questions for you. Uh, what um, one, one thing we, we talked about was, um, you know, how we had the U2 program and there was, they were, they were flying over. Now, from my understanding, didn't our Air Force actually have like a secret space program as well, that they actually had manned craft that, was a, that, that, that they were able to fly over Soviet space and take photos or anything like that? Nothing like that? No. No, they, they were developing, uh, and, and it was a, a highly secretive program at the time, um, what was called Dinosaur, uh, the X-24 program. And, uh, and it was going to be a, a two-person space plane that was going to be launched uh, from the United States that could overfly the Soviet Union. Um, it, uh, the program began in the late 50s. It finally was terminated by McNamara in 1963. They did get to the point where they bent metal. They did build some, some structures associated with this. They never tested it. They never flew it. Uh, and by the, and the reason it was canceled was that by the 1963, the Corona program was operating and they were getting a, a, a rich harvest of material from that using uh, robotic spacecraft. And what's the point of having humans doing this thing? So, um, so the reality is uh, that program did exist, but they never got to the point where they were fly. Okay, great. Um, I, I guess one of the people uh, I know, I think Joe Rogan's had some of these people on where, uh, and also just, and he's talked a lot about, about it, um, is that we have these newly uh, released uh, footage of these craft that were filmed by our military, by our Air Force, by our Navy, doing these uh, crazy maneuvers, uh, uh, doing things that shouldn't possi be possible. Um, when, when you see footage like this, and our government is releasing it, um, and is saying basically that they are unidentified objects, uh, what do you say to that? What, 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 I mean, what is it very interesting to you, and how do you analyze that footage? Well, I don't analyze it. I, you know, I, I don't have the capability. To analyze oh, not analyze it, it but how do you uh, respond to it? Like when you're watching it, like what, what is, what does it look like to you? What, what goes through your head when you I, see I, footage like that? I, I, I cannot make a statement about what it is. Right. Uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, there's unusual maneuvers. That's the, that's the most I can say about it. Okay. So basically, you're just applying the scientific method, man. Like I don't know. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I think this is one of the key things, like a lot of people, you know, they're very anti-NASA, I noticed in this group, and that, you know, and I, I, I often NASA is the boogeyman. Uh, I know that I've seen books where it was a conspiracy with the Freemasons, and then conspiracies with the Nazis, um, uh, you know, that there's the, the dark history of NASA. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. <laughs> well, I can't speak to the Freemasons at all, um, but... Um... But the, you know, the stories of, of conspiracies, I mean, we were talking about extraterrestrial things. As I said, I worked at NASA for 12 years, and I knew dozens, if not hundreds of people, 
who would have given almost anything to be able to confirm that there is life beyond this planet. And, and so if there was evidence of that life, they would have been singing it from the rooftops. They would have never, you would have never kept them quiet. Um, so the reality is it's just, it's just not there. Uh, it doesn't mean we won't find evidence of, of alien life, but we haven't found it yet. And the folks who, you know, sort of traffic in conspiracy theories are predisposed to make everything a conspiracy when it's mostly not. Yeah, it's, it reminds me, because I, I know often what happens is, and I've, I've, uh, I remember like the Brookings, Brookings Institute in the early 60s came up with a paper, what would happen if we found that there was other ancient, other civilizations, alien civilizations, could this lead to the collapse of society? And it was speculated that it could be quite a disruptive force to the human community to the point that the need would be to cover this up in order to keep social order. What would you say to something like that? I'd say it's nonsense. Uh, you know, that's an argument that was uh, maybe made uh, in an intellectual uh, setting in the early 1960s, but we are predisposed to believe in the possibilities of, of, um, of life beyond this planet. And uh, I think a lot of us would welcome that knowledge, especially interactions that might be exceptionally positive. Uh, the reality is if, if we were to be visited by uh, extraterrestrials of some type that have the capability to travel through, uh, through interplanetary, actually you know, beyond interplanetary space, because uh, they would be from this, not from the solar system, I'm pretty well convinced. Uh, that means they have technologies that are so far beyond ours. But I hope they're our friends because if they're not, they could wipe us out in a heartbeat. So uh, the, talking about interstellar objects, I know that there have been a couple detected that have some had speculated uh, could possibly be a craft. By the way, that it uh, is there is any of that stuff? Do you think there's anything to any of that? Uh, no, I mean there, there there's no way to to know this. I mean you can speculate till you're blue in the face. Um, what is it? What is it that we're talking about? What is it that we know about it? What are the things we don't know about it? And um, and can we make any judgments on the basis of those things? So um, I think one of the things I find interesting is a, a lot of the reasons why people go into NASA in the first place is they want to find the stuff. They want to find uh, proof of civilizations. That's a motivating factor. They want to explore. Many of them like Star Trek, and that was a motivation for them to, you know, go work at NASA. I imagine that in the 1990s, a lot of people I know in the FBI, they were all watching the X Files. Imagine in the 1990s, there were probably a lot of X Files fans <laughs> at NASA interested in that kind of stuff, and and that's you know it's part of it sparks part of the human imagination, and uh, so I think it's important that I mean, look, I'm I, I just find the whole thing fascinating, and I think that a lot of people who work at NASA probably were watching a lot of these same programs, reading some of these books and thought, well, I'm going to go to work for NASA because I find I, I, the idea really excites me. So if anything, a lot of these books may have stimulated people to maybe go into the and explore these things as well. Yeah, sure. No question. I, I mean, I, there, you know, there's a, there's a broad interest in, in science fiction uh, among those who are associated with NASA. And uh, especially when we're talking about sort of uh, 
you know, positive interaction, like you see on a Star Trek, for instance. Um, that's a that's something that's been very, uh, uh, you know, very very much a part of uh, of what a lot of people have incorporated into their backgrounds, and inspiration is is a big factor. There's no question, and and these kinds of possibilities uh, do excite individuals. We just need to be careful in the context of what we know and don't know, and uh, and not overstep what we what we can plausibly think about this. And, and I and I got to tell you, um, you know, some of this stuff and the X Files is an example of this. Uh, I mean that that is a set of fictitious stories, many of which are compelling, um, and it paints. Um, the powers that be, whoever those powers are, the smoking man or whatever, as uh, as sort of evil incarnate. Now that that's wonderful if you're setting up drama, but that's not the reality that at least I have experienced. So I want to go a little full circle here, folks. So now my channel is called Mormon Book Reviews. Uh, and it's what's so fascinating to me is that within the 19th century religious context, uh, there was what made Mormonism so interesting is that it speculated the idea that there was life on other planets. You had the Pratt Brothers, the Seer publication that was speculative. Uh, then you had the idea of Kolob. And, uh, you know, and so there's like a science fiction un underpinning to Mormonism, which, of course, would uh, inspire uh, Battlestar Galactica, as well as Orson Scott Card's The Homecoming series, which is uh, basically the Book of Mormon in space. But I also want to talk about another 19th century movement uh, called the Seventh-day Adventists, who also were very highly speculative about life on other planets. And people don't realize this. If you're really into UFO stuff, the Urantia book, uh, the blue book, if you will, is highly uh, influenced by Seventh-day Adventist uh, theology and doctrine. So I find it interesting that we have two religious movements from the 19th century that have been very influential on science fiction, on uh, idea of life on other planets and aliens and communicating with them. I just think it's all interesting how it all kind of ties together. All right. Can I, can I say something about please uh, that in the context of NASA? So James C. Fletcher became the NASA administrator in 1971. Uh, he actually served two terms, he, 71 to 77. And again, after Challenger, um, he was brought in for, I think, three years to, to lead the agency as administrator. Uh, he was LDS, very devout. Um, he pursued two areas that he thought were critical based upon his LDS beliefs. One was, we know that there are extraterrestrials because the book of Abraham tells us. And, uh, and in that context, uh, we need to try to understand more about this. And so it was during his tenure in the 1970s that the Voyager spacecraft, both Pioneer and Voyager were launched. And in both of those, uh, they had affixed to those spacecraft a, um, uh, a, a plaque on the, on, the, on, the, on the pioneers that basically showed what we looked like, male, female, where we were located in, in, the, uh, uh, you know, in the universe, with the intention that someday this will be found by somebody. And of course, uh, the gold record, the so-called gold record on the Voyager spacecraft was much more elaborate. It did all of those things, but it also then 
uh, contained greetings from Earth in multiple languages, lots of uh, lots of music from you know from Mozart to uh, to Billie Holiday to uh, Chuck Berry, and in fact, there's a joke that said that's a, from the SETI. It said, you know, we got a message from beyond, and they and the message said, send more Chuck Berry. But um, <laughs> old joke, but nonetheless funny, and. And Fletcher was all on board with that because we know they're there. We have to learn about them as best we can. And this is a part of the process. And it'll take centuries, but you know, if we don't start, we'll never know. The, um, the second area that he emphasized was the development of environmental systems. So the first Landsats were, were launched during his tenure in the early 1970s. With the intention, and he used this term explicitly, we have stewardship over the earth. We must preserve it and, and make it useful for our successors for centuries to come. Uh, and that is straight out of Mormonism. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in my mind, that, that Mormon belief system really positively influenced some things that uh, have become significant advances. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing that because I think that actually ties everything in so perfectly from both my channels and we, we were able to discuss that. And I just find the whole topic. So those of you who are watching who don't know anything about Mormonism, this might pique your interest because there's a lot of interesting stuff within the world of Mormonism. And just so you know, you're affiliated with the community of Christ, which is uh, you wrote the book about Joseph Smith III, your founding prophet. Great book. If you want to just, I mean, when I was on Mormon Stories with John DeLynn, I listed heroes of Mormonism, and one of the people that I listed was Joseph Smith III. Uh, a remarkable man, remarkable book. I read this book 15 years ago and reread it last year for a book club with the Community of Christ. Um, it's fascinating stuff. So I'll leave a link in the description for you to purchase that book as well. Uh, I want to thank you so much for taking your time to come on my program. It really meant a lot to me when you came on the first time to talk about Joseph Smith III. And, it, and I think it's really awesome that you came on to share so that you could kind of do your lecture that you used to do every year, and you could share it with my audience as well. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm sure they're not going to find, uh, many of them are not going to find my answers satisfying, and that's perfectly all right. I believe in the marketplace of ideas. Yep. And uh, I contribute what I know. Others contribute what they know. This gets accepted, rejected, modified, whatever happens. Ultimately, I would like to think that we reach a greater approximation of truth, not that we ever actually know truth, but, uh, but moving in that direction. And, um, and I, I don't mean to be, be dismissive of others, but uh, I, I do mean to be critical of, of things and ask the core question, what is the evidence? There, there's a, one final story that I will tell. So in 1947, Chuck Ayer flew faster than the speed of sound. We all know that story. There was a story that emerged immediately afterwards in which some people were saying Chuck was not the first to fly faster than the speed of sound. The test pilot for North American Aviation, a fellow by the name of Wheaties Welch, actually dove an F-86 and, and reached supersonic speeds. And uh, when confronted with that particular story, the project manager for the, uh, for the X-1 program that Chuck Yeager had flown uh, uh, faster than the speed of sound, uh, said to these folks, show me the data. Where is the, the recorded information 
evidence to support this idea. Until you can show me the data, I'm not going to believe you. And, uh, and by the way, in that particular instance, we're still waiting. Uh, I would contend that the same question and the same statement is valid in, in any context associated with conspiracy theories. So folks, uh, for those of you I put this on Reddit, I, I, I apologize if I didn't ask all the questions the right way. And I'm sure there's all these your things. Now leave your comments and in, in, in just leave your comments on the video. Um, I'm interested in the subject. I think it's really important to have conversations. It's important for Roger to come on and give his perspective on this based on just the science and where does it lead you? Where do the facts lead you? Where does the data lead you? Uh, and, and then make your uh, assessments uh, you know, accordingly based on what we, uh, the information and evidence that we have. Uh, I wanna thank you again for coming on. I hope that you, uh, oh, and this is our thing too, Roger. Uh, I'm a baseball guy. So I think at some point we're gonna have to come on and do a special baseball episode. Perhaps we could talk about good old Charlie O'Finley. Uh, that would be a possibility. Or how about this guy? Oh, Stan the Man. Yeah. Yeah, that was my dad's favorite baseball player, by the way, growing up. Even, And I'm a Cubs fan, so I have to, you know. Ooh, okay. <laughs> All right, Roger. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. Just a reminder, don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification button for when a new episode comes out. We are now on all the major podcast formats, uh, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. About a quarter of my audience is now watching, uh, listening to the program through the podcast format as well. I want to thank you. I also want to thank my Patreons, as well as my supporters on PayPal, who are financially underwriting the program. Um, if you're interested in supporting this program, it'd be great. Uh, every bit helps. Uh, and uh, also, if you want to purchase on the merch store, that's great, too. Uh, again, thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for uh, putting up with me, kind of doing something a little bit different than normal. But I got we, get to, we did get to tie it all into Mormonism, so spot on. So thanks again, Roger, and you all have yourself a great day.